Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Today's guest is a psychiatrist and the chief medical officer of Eleanor Health, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I am honored to have with me today one of the most inspiring physician leaders I've had the privilege to meet. She's a psychiatrist, an educator, a leader in health equity, the co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, host of the Recovery Weekly podcast by Lemonada Media. She has a faculty appointment at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and probably most importantly, she is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Eleanor Health, which is an incredibly cool, value-based, comprehensive at-risk provider of outpatient addiction treatment. Dr. Nzinga Harrison, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Sharif, first of all, please call me Nzinga. We're all family here. Second of all, can I offer you a job on doing all of my introductions <laughs> going forward? That was beautiful. <laughs> I, was, I was so excited. I was just channeling your energy. It made it easy. Well, I, I genuinely, I, I, I'm pumped to share with our audience your rich background, your, your work at Eleanor Health, which I think is very unique, and honestly, the incredible things you've done as a physician leader. But I want to start with this open-ended question that sort of dives into your origins and roots for our audience. What would you say just brought you to medicine, brought you to psychiatry? I'll just start there. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I start this usually with a funny joke, like it was a cold, crisp fall day in Indianapolis. <laughs> um, I know, it's a it, question. Yeah, exactly. But it is important. I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana in the um, late 70s, early 80s. And my mom was a public school educator. And my dad was an electrical engineer by night. That was his side gig. His main gig was um, he started and was commander of the local Black Panther militia, Indianapolis. Oh, so cool. Yeah. I can't so, imagine growing up in that environment, the values that must have instilled. That's right. I was raised an activist, baked in my bones, in my DNA, right? So my mom was an activist in public education. My dad was an activist via the Black Panther militia. And I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, and so like wildly majority white, early 80s, late 70s, racism is like in full swing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I decided pretty early, five or six years old, that I wanted to be, I told my parents, I'm going to be a doctor and a teacher. And I think what is really cool is that, you know, a typical response to that would be, well, people are doctors or teachers, but not doctors and teachers. And my parents were like, okay, great. So what do we need to do to help you be a doctor and a teacher? It was like, you have oh. infinite, that's what our parents instilled in us. Like you have infinite potential, equal value to every other human being on this planet and always fight for those who are being marginalized, oppressed, discriminated against, raise your voice against injustice. Like these are the values that were instilled in me growing up. And so I decided to be a pediatrician um, 
And because that's the only doctor I knew. I don't have doctors in my family, right? Yeah, so when enough. you're little, I, I a doctor. Think similarly, I felt it's by my, pedi- my pediatrician. Yeah. Too. A doctor is a pediatrician. But interestingly, Sharif, I was not inspired by my pediatrician because I thought he was amazing. I thought he wasn't a good doctor. <laughs> and I was six. That's another way like, of inspiration, I guess. What do you know? Right. Like, what do I know about being a good doctor? But looking back, what I realized was that I was invisible in the room. He only talked to my wow. mom. He asked my mom, what is she thinking? What symptoms is she having? How is she feeling? And I was like, hello, I'm right here, right? And so I recognized that because I got diagnosed with scoliosis, went to see an orthopedic surgeon when I was 12 and the experience was completely different. The visit was dramatically shorter, but he walked in and he said, hey, Nzinga, how are you? Oh, hey, mom, how are you? Nzinga, what's going on with you? Oh, you want to be a doctor? Here's your film. Let me explain it to you. Oh, didn't you tell me last time that you were trying out for cheerleading? Right. He took an interest in me as a person and talked to me as a capable person able to understand his decision making and thought process and participate in my treatment planning. And then I decided to be a surgeon. (laughs) I went to medical school. And I was like, I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm going to be a pediatric surgeon. Um, And I went to medical school and, you know, you you rotate through all of the the core systems, psychiatry being one of them. I personally did not know that psychiatry was a medical specialty. I had no idea. Um, The only thing I had heard about psychiatry was like, Freud, lay on my couch, tell me about your mother, which is also critically important. But like, Mm -hmm. I didn't know about science and medicine as it relates to psychiatry. So when I did that rotation, I was like, holy crap. The science of behavior is incredible. The neurobiology of thoughts and feelings and emotions and the way psychology and relationships and social stressors wraps into that. Like I had this amazingly brilliant whole person psychiatry attending teaching me psychiatry. And I was like, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And then I saw the way that the healthcare system treated people that had mental health conditions. And it was marginalization, oppression, discrimination. And that tapped my activist button. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, it fits from activist button, it fits from medicine button. And then addiction medicine, I say, people with addiction are the redheaded stepchild of the redheaded stepchild of mental health of medicine. And it was a perfect fit. And I decided then, and that's what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years. Wow. I think there's a really, really profound lesson there that it's okay to, I guess this is more of a lesson towards people who might be very early in their career, or maybe all of us. It's okay to have, you know, strong convictions loosely held based on a, you know, incomplete understanding of something that guides you and inspires you and pushes you. And then as you search, you find that click what you're doing now, it comes full circle and changing the field for the better and being a leader in medicine at a whole new level with Eleanor. Yes. I wanted to double click actually on the the challenges with mental health in this country, which are obviously credibly vast from, you know, the criminal justice side of things to mm-hmm. even the medical care side of things. I remember in our last conversation, we had a... Uh, I had a question about borderline patients and how Eleanor 
you know, takes care of borderline patients because oftentimes when you when you write that in someone's chart, they mm-hmm. end up getting not as good care. And mm-hmm. you said, we love our borderline patients. And that really stuck to me. And I was like, you know, Enzinga has such a big heart and really gets it. Um, I guess my question around this is just maybe for our listeners, can you share generally why it's been so challenging for the health system to value mental health uh-huh. and build out infrastructure there because there's this incredible supply demand mismatch and it only seems to be getting worse? Yeah. Um, before I answer that question, I'll tell you about my patient with borderline personality yes. that I just saw last week. Um, so I've been, <clears throat> excuse me, sick for the last three months. I'm doing great. Nobody has to worry about me, oh, uh, but like on video, I don't look sick because it's like, it was like a shortness of breath situation that's getting taken care of. But so I'm on video for like three months, not feeling good. Right. But like handling business. And so I connect to this, uh, we call the folks that we take care of Eleanor community member because we believe that health is about building community. So widening that vision of people from illness, which sits in patient to community member. And so um, I had like had a hard night, like woke up it, it, terrible, whatever. The day started off and I was like, oh my God, I'm not in it. I pop on the camera and the very first thing she says to me, She's like, you look sick. And somebody else would have taken that as rude, right? I got tears in my eyes. And she said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. I wasn't trying to be mean to you. And I said, I have been on camera sick for three months and nobody else saw it. Like people with borderline personality disorder, they see us. They feel us deeply. They feel deeply. But then sometimes the delivery is harsh, right? (laughs) Like, you look sick. But it was a beautiful moment in our relationship because I thanked her. I said, thank you for seeing me. And that was like a, a really beautiful note in our relationship. Anyway, to answer your question, the reason I think the mental health system, the health system has a hard time investing in mental health is because so often we can't see it. It's in the way we think, it's in the way we feel, it's in the way we behave, it's in the decisions we make, it's in the way we treat each other. And we conceptualize that as who you are. And so that was the beauty when I did my psychiatry rotation in medical school, because I grew up with that concept also that that represents who you are. And what I was learning was that sometimes that represents the symptoms you are currently having. And so in medicine, we're really taught like, if you can't find it on physical exam, or you can't find it in a lab value, or you can't see it on a CAT scan, that it's not real. And a lot of what we deal with in mental health, in psychiatry and addiction medicine even, is not necessarily tangibly able to be found on a CAT scan in a set of labs on a physical exam. You can find it on a mental status exam. And so I think because it can be hard to appreciate these symptoms, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, decisions, interpersonal interactions as symptoms, then the healthcare system doesn't take responsibility for investing in the people who have those symptoms. 
Yeah, yeah. I have this beautifully said. And maybe then, could you share a little bit for our audience exactly what Eleanor Health is setting out to do, its mission and what it does? Because I feel like Eleanor Health is like one of the first, I, there are a few others, uh, City Block comes to mind. They're yeah. really trying to solve this problem at its core. That's right. And so I think that really starts with our mission at Eleanor Health is to help people affected by addiction live amazing lives. And we started with people first intentionally. And we didn't say improve health because it's about living, right? And we said people affected by addiction because that is all of us, whether you're the person that has the addiction or not. Each of us has been touched by addiction personally, professionally, systemically, structurally in some way. And so we take on the responsibility to change the way people affected by addiction are treated in this country, not just in the healthcare system, in life. That's stigma reduction. That's being a teacher. That's public education. But first and foremost, it is valuing the humanity and life experience of people affected by addiction and standing in their autonomy, like validating when they tell you, this is what I've been through. This is what has happened to me. This is what I'm currently experiencing. This is what's important to me right now. Being able to stand in that autonomy and take responsibility for also helping them navigate things that happen outside the 15 minutes they're in a doctor's visit with me, right? Like there's a whole life wrapping around that 15 minutes and putting pressure on that person's health or illness. And so at Eleanor Health, we start with compassion and humanity. And we follow that quickly with an understanding of substance use disorders and other mental health conditions as chronic medical conditions, meaning you can't treat it in five days, right? And we have the foundational belief that health comes from connection and relationships. And so we invest very heavily in relationships with the people we're caring for, our community members, and the people who are doing the caring, our team members, right? Like we believe a culture of compassion and connection will drive health. And if you start there, you can figure out the rest because you won't say, I'm canceling your appointment because the bus made you late, right? Or I'm not giving you this prescription because I think you should be focusing on alcohol use disorder and you're focusing on trying to get a job. You will be like compassion, connection, let us help this person get a job and then we can talk about alcohol after that. That's not currently the way the system works. So we're just trying to do it completely differently. Yeah. And Zinka, what do you think about the role of the startup, entrepreneurial, innovative, for-profit sector working on this challenge compared to government resources, um, public policy, and, um, you know, support from social institutions? Yeah. So I think we all hold the responsibility. Every single one of those sectors that you mentioned holds the responsibility. I spent the first, so let's see, if I started practicing, let's see, residency 2002, finished 2006. So if I started practicing now a full 20 years ago, I spent my whole career before Eleanor Health in under-resourced systems. 
government systems, county-based systems, private nonprofits. And we were trying to push the envelope and we were innovating, but there's infrastructure there that makes it slow. There's lack of resources there that makes it slow. They're already existing. So the existing healthcare culture has already permeated that organization. So even as you're trying to change things, you're fighting against an existing culture that's not pointed in the same direction. And so what I think the role and responsibility of DCPE, resources, right? And so we can innovate at a speed that an existing system cannot because we're starting outside the system. We're starting with resources that are being dedicated to innovation instead of carved off the side of something else as a secondary thought. And then I think also, um, like at Eleanor Health, we had the absolute privilege of building our culture from scratch. So we built a culture that is counter to the existing healthcare culture. It's like our own little Eleanor culture bubble. And that feeds our ability to innovate quickly on behalf of the community members that we're serving, on behalf of the communities that we're joining. But then it also helps us to elevate the standard that other healthcare providers will be held to. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this. It, we were talking about this before. It's, it's, it's really activism through entrepreneurship yes. in a way. Back to my roots, back to exactly, my roots. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I guess one of the things I was curious about is, you know, in the United States, we spend about 20% of our GDP almost on healthcare and 10% on social services. And in Europe or most other developed countries, that number is flipped where they'll spend 20% uh, of social services and 10% of the GDP on healthcare. I was curious if Eleanor Health in confronting a lot of these social challenges and becoming almost like a provider of these social services is able to do so with these at-risk contracts just because healthcare has gotten so stupidly expensive where now there's actually a business model and somebody holding a bill at the end of the day within the healthcare system that really had no job being within the healthcare system. It really should have been managed by a social services network and Eleanor sort of bridging that gap. Because otherwise, I I'm curious about exactly um, how people can, I remember business school, so many people wanted to make things better in healthcare, but there was a cynicism that mm -hmm. you can do that through business or through entrepreneurship, but we're seeing yeah. glimmers of hope in companies like Eleanor. I was curious yeah. how you guys have thought about that in thinking about your business model. Yeah, and so I think it really starts with even pushing that thought even further. Like you said, these are costs that should be in the social service system, not in the healthcare system. And I think pushing that thought even further is like, there is no separating social service and health. Mm. And so part of the way we finance this company where it's like we finance the, the criminal justice system separately from health, but we know that the criminal justice system is intimately involved in negative health consequences. Oh, yeah, it's so I true. I.e. physicians for criminal justice reform, right? Mm -hmm. Like we finance education separate from health, but we know that the educational system is intimately involved in the development of health and wellness or the opposite thereof for people. 
And so when you keep those financing systems completely separate, I could say the same for housing, I could say the same for finance, I could say the same for wealth, like whatever system it is, that is what defines our lives and experiences and relationships and connections. And so those are the things that are defining our health, right? Like we like to think of it so narrowly, like, oh, it's your norepinephrine. Yeah. Right. Or like, oh, it's your, you know, islet cells in your pancreas for diabetes. Yeah. But that is a sliver of the story. So I talk about this concept we learn in medical school, the biopsychosocial concept. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the biopsychosocial concept said, you know, biological, psychological, social reasons for the development of illness, and you have to intervene in all three of those to be successful. It's really biopsychosocial, cultural, political concept. Because all of those experiences that we're having are being integrated physiologically, psychologically, pathologically, and the output is our health. And so at Eleanor, to your point, the healthcare system is holding the cost for all of these other systems that wrap around us. And so that gives the opportunity for a business model that joins the human incentive and the financial incentive. The problem with the healthcare system right now is that you can have a wildly lucrative healthcare business with a, you know, you have your own private jet, you have bought your own island, <laughs> and the communities that you're taking care of are not getting better because yeah. there's not accountability to outcomes. And so what we say is we'll take risk. Like we developed to get into the nuts and bolts of it, we developed a proprietary data claims algorithm. We give it to a payer so they can run it across their membership and it surfaces people who could benefit from joining the Eleanor community. And then they assign that population to us and we do proactive outreach and engagement to people in that population. And we don't call them and say, hey, we heard you got trouble with drugs. Can we help? Right. Like we call and say, listen, we want to be a part of your community. Is there anything you feel like is bearing down on your health and wellness? Because we can either address it with our internal resources or we can help you coordinate forward with the resources in your community. And we welcome people to Eleanor Health and we address all of those things that are typically considered not the responsibility of a healthcare provider. All of those other things that are wrapping around us. And we let you know, we ask that person to prioritize for us, like, what is it you feel like you need right now to start feeling better? And that's where we go. Sometimes that's, I can't sleep. Sometimes that's, I need help stop using heroin. Sometimes that I need help finding a job. Sometimes that I've got trouble in my marriage and, um, you know, I need help with communication, whatever it is, we figure out a way to deliver that value to that person, start that relationship. And then over time, you get to the substance. There's no way you don't in a relationship that's trusting and compassionate and supportive. And so we have built the current substance use disorder treatment system that like you have to come in the door. I have trouble with substances and I'm going to stop today. Like diabetes. I already controlled my blood sugar. Can I have some insulin? This is the corollary, right? And so we're just, we're practicing harm reduction. Start the relationship. We don't want you to die. Even while you're using drugs, start the relationship, stand in their autonomy, take advantage of the opportunities that the relationship creates. And then on the other end, 
we improve depression, anxiety, substance use disorder. We, we improve social drivers of health. We reduce hospitalization, ED, inpatient stays. When we reduce all of those, we get people connected to primary care so they can have longitudinal care. They stay with us longitudinally. All of that saves the plan money. And we say, when you save money, we get some of that money, shared savings. And so because our North Star is outcomes, the only way Eleanor Health is successful is if people are getting better, then we invest in processes that keep people with us and help them get better. As opposed to when your business uh, success is based on quantity, you focus on how to deliver more quantity. Yeah, and you'll be so very good at this one core yep. competency that yep. you're taking at risk for um, and in a way that nobody else will. And I I can't wait to see where Eleanor will go and scale and hopefully be able to, to share that system because it's desperately needed. There are some, you know, focused plans. So like one example is the Medicare Advantage has these special needs plans and they're just sort of tailored benefits, provider choices, drug formularies that meet certain group needs in a capitated system. But how would you describe Eleanor Health taking that to the next level? I mean, you touched upon a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So those um, those are great plans, um, you know, walking the right direction, but they're still pretty narrowly focused on health care interventions, yeah. right? And so at Eleanor, we know that like... Um, these are real these are real community member examples from Eleanor Health. We had a community member who was with us. She was doing great. She had a close family member die. Her community recovery partner, which is um, one of the team members on her direct care team from Eleanor Health, went to the funeral. We know that taking time out of that peers, revenue generating time and a fee for service model for them to drive to that funeral to be just to show their face in support of our community member makes a connection shows a level of compassion and caring that brings that person back to Eleanor health during their period of grief instead of to drugs right but you would not conceive of spending one, taking money out of revenue generating time and then spending money to reimburse time and gas to spend at a funeral. It's critical. We have another community member, when we have community members who are pregnant, we're sending first trimester gift baskets, little Eleanor Health onesies, right? When they have the baby, like Aww. putting their baby picture, you know what I'm saying? Like, these are the human interactions that you invest in to drive health. But a Medicaid special needs plan doesn't say, and here's the money you use for the intangibles. It's like, oh, okay, peer services in the office is not reimbursed, you can do that. Oh, therapy is not reimbursed, you can do that. But it's still a very kind of narrow medical concept. And so ours is like, oh, another community member got her GED, her peer went. Another community member couldn't make it in the office because of agoraphobia, met her at her house, worked up to the coffee shop down the road, eventually worked up to the clinic, right? Like those are the type of investments that have no fee-for-service reimbursement code that you have to make in relationship and people to make your 
typical healthcare interventions effective. Yeah, yeah. It's so clear. Eleanor's real secret sauce is the human connection you guys <laughs> are building. Yes. And you and Corbin, I could not imagine better people at the helm doing that. You know, um, before you were at Eleanor, you were a, on the board of, and you founded, let's see, there was Breakthrough House, these mm -hmm. uh, education institutions, these advocacy organizations. We talked about Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, uh, Veritas Academy, uh, addiction medicine programs. Can you share how those, you know, how you got involved with those, how that, that those experiences inform your current role? Yeah. I mean, you see my parents in there, right? Like, yeah, you see activism, you see addiction, you see education. Um, and so I was on the board of Breakthrough House, which is a residential um, treatment program for women with addictive disorders in the Atlanta area. And I actually got involved with them because I was running addictive disease services for the county mental health system in the county where I use and uh, those women would come to our program for their treatment. And so I got to know like the women who were living there and they became part of my life. And when I left that role, I wanted to stay connected to that program. I joined the board. Um, that was the first board that I sat on. And I came to absolutely love board work because you could just bring such a perspective to, you know, su support the executives and management and operators who are on the ground doing the work. Um, from there, I do a lot of teaching. So I said when I was five or six, I'm going to be a physician and a teacher. Um, yep, I yep. absolutely love teaching. And um, I was teaching medical students um, at this medical school in Tennessee, DeBusk. And my girlfriend was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry over there. And she was like, I have this student from Nigeria who has a school to educate the kids in Nigeria. He's starting a nonprofit. He's looking for board members. And I was like, yes. Um, and so then I was on the founding board for Veritas, um, Veritas Education, and we were supporting kids in Nigeria getting their education. That's like straight path from my mom, right? But that's also straight path to education as a pathway to health. Um, and so then from there, during the time after Michael Brown was killed and we had um, all of these police murders of unarmed Black men kind of happening in a stream with... Um, uh, John Crawford. Um, then one of my friends uh, and colleagues who's a neurosurgeon, Dr. Edjaw Induam, Facebooked me late at night and was like, um, I feel like there's a role and responsibility for physicians to organize and advocate for criminal justice reform. And he was like, do you think this is a crazy idea? And I was like, not only is it not crazy, let's do it. Um, and so we formed Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. That was 2015. We pulled together a group of advisors. We are now a national nonprofit with 50 state representation. You don't have to be a physician to join. So please join us. We have over 50 specialties in different professions represented. You don't have to have a specialty or a profession. You just have to have a passion. Um, and that has been just absolutely remarkable to talk medical students and physicians through our ethical responsibility to advocate for criminal justice reform um, through, you know, the ethical principles of beneficence and now maleficence. Um, so those, those kind of all, while they seem different, are pulled together by my personal concept of health and our professional 
concept of health at Eleanor Health, which is like the life we live that wraps around us is health. And so we have to be paying attention to all of those things. Yeah, that is so cool. I'm so excited what you as a leader in this space are going to do with Eleanor beyond Eleanor. These are the the qualities and values I think our health system and our people and our patients, just Mm -hmm. fellow humans need. And um, it's sometimes you can lose it a bit in the bureaucracy or, you know, the financials and so forth. Yeah. Um, or at and least the, the protocolization right? of medicine too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need it, right, Sharif? Like sometimes, yeah. like right now, I'm on both sides of the equation. I am a patient getting care in the healthcare system. It's very difficult. And I have an astounding number of connections and a very deep ability to read the medical literature. And it is difficult to navigate, right? So like I'm on the other side of the equation and we definitely need it for the people we're taking care of but we also need it for the people who are doing the caring, like people in medicine, social services, education, criminal justice reform, uh, the majority are there for a reason, a passion that burns for people and the system threatens to douse water on that passion. I see so many parallels with um, the work done by, do you know Arthur Kleinman by chance? I know of Arthur Kleinman. He's like the father of medical anthropology. Yes. Uh, he had written this book called The Soul of Care, and all of his works are around the humanism, the human aspect. So mm-hmm. he was actually my first podcast guest with his pupil, oh, wow. protege, Paul Farmer. Um, yeah, of course, no Paul Farmer. I, it's amazing how these themes are so incredibly intertwined from different dimensions around what it the human experience is like and needs to be, you know, not lost sight of um, in everything we do. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious about that I wanted to share for our audience is, you know, you've had these different hats as a teacher, a physician, a leader, chief medical officer. What percentage of your time do you spend right now doing a little bit of each or any of each and, um, what would you say is, you know, a day in life and Nzinga? Are you able to still provide teaching? Maybe you do teaching within Eleanor, you nurture and you identify talent and do that. Maybe it's changed, but curious uh, how that setup's uh, going. Yeah. yeah. Eleanor is um, my entire life. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And then on top of my entire life, actually, that's not true. My entire life, my husband and my kids. That's my entire life. Um, and then Eleanor's, life. We're talking about work life. Yeah, Eleanor's my entire professional life. Um, and then on top of that entire pie sits Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. So if I had to sit it in slices, I would probably say like 95% Eleanor, 5% everything else. Um, and <laughs> But Eleanor is the opportunity for teaching. And so like this, this time that I'm spending you with you right now, I consider this Eleanor time. I consider this being a leader. I consider this being a teacher. I consider this being an activist, right? I consider this working to bust down public stigma, working to change hearts and minds, working to galvanize and inspire someone else who maybe doesn't see themselves as an entrepreneur to think about how they can innovate within the system they're currently in. Um, And so like last week I had the, it, it was so much fun. 
opportunity to teach Tux um, business students, MD, MBA students. And we had so much fun. And the entire point of it was like, there's an innovator within every single one of us. You know, like there's a scale and you can call it one to 10 and one is like complete disruption. I'm outside the system. It's VCPE money. We're starting something from scratch. This is Eleanor Health, right? And to 10 is all the way. I'm in the slowest moving system, but I'm constantly trying to contribute to how that system can do better. All of it is valuable and we need all of it. And so a day in the life of Nzinga is like, you know, all day, every day, Eleanor Health, um, teaching. I get to see community members. So I have a small clinic as well. Mm. Um, just making sure we point to our North Star, which is measuring ourselves, using data to hold ourselves accountable to always getting better for the people we serve. And I consider Eleanor in service to our community members as well as our team members that, um, that do the work. Yeah, of course. And could you share a little bit about what it means to be a chief medical officer specifically and exactly how your clinical duties and patient care informs your roles right now? Yeah. So um, being a chief medical officer is um, being the where the buck stops for care model, quality of care. And I think also culture from a medical perspective. So it is like setting the culture and feel of the organization that you're running. It is constantly making sure you're driving choices that are values consistent in an environment. So I'm talking about the external environment that is constantly putting pressure on that, right? So like an example of that is When we started Eleanor Health, there were not at-risk contracts to be had in the behavioral health space. We really, in the substance use disorder treatment space, like we created that opportunity. But before that opportunity, we had to take care of people to prove our outcomes. So how do we operate in a fee-for-service system in keeping with our values? Um, I feel like that, and then as we move from fee-for-service to value-based care to population health, that naturally puts pressure on, well, what about the community members we're taking care of whose payer is only fee-for-service right now? What responsibility do we have to that existing relationship while trying to keep the company financially sustainable and moving in a certain direction? And so as chief medical officer, it's my responsibility to make sure we're sitting in the values of our care model while growing and scaling a business that is sustainable. And it's being a force of inspiration and medical knowledge and strategic sense and business knowledge for how you navigate competing priorities. How much of your work is involved in hiring medical professionals, overseeing them, and trying to create a team in the vision of Eleanor? Yeah. So we think at Eleanor, people process technology, people process technology in that order And so overwhelmingly, um, you have to have the right people to drive the culture that you want to have. And so we're not like, you know, 
you need to have the medical skill set. You need to have a skill set in addiction treatment. You need to have a skill set in psychiatry if we're hiring you for the psychiatry team and therapy and peer support, whatever we're hiring you for. First and foremost, like I say, I don't care. You could be number one in your class. If you don't have a burning passion for the humanity of people with substance use disorder, this is not the right place for you. If you don't have a burning passion for changing the way we do healthcare, and that means being able to sit in uncertainty and constant change, which is Eleanor, there's a different place for you, right? And so our people are number one, and then it's designing process and using technology to, to support that. Do you have any advice for trainees who look up to you and are like, wow, that seems like a cool job. What can I do to get involved with that? Yes. My advice for trainees is if you're in straight medical school without a business component, you are not going to learn what you need to learn. So seek out. I really like, and this is not an endorsement. They don't know me. They don't pay me. American Association for Physician Leadership. If you're not in a, in a business degree program as well, like go there, take classes, start building your business acumen early because I did not learn any of it in medical school. And I was so grateful to have an MD, MBA mentor very, very, very early in my career that set me on this path. Administrative work is so much fun if you love it. If you don't, it is not for you. And that is perfectly fine, right? So get to know yourself. Know that with a degree in medicine and a skill set in business, your opportunities are infinite. So if you're in a current situation that doesn't quite feel like a fit, don't stay there. Keep looking until you find your fit, because when you find your fit is where you will bring the most value to the change that the healthcare system needs. Beautifully said. Uh, that's cool. I hadn't heard of the American Association for Physician Leadership. Yeah, maybe APL. Very cool. And it, it, I'm sure it's less than the $200,000 Harvard for. <laughs> An MBA. Definitely less than that. <laughs> <laughs> My last question, Enzingo, we always end the podcast with it's only just, you know, is there anything you came across recently? A book, a movie, another podcast, a TV show, a song that you found inspiring or interesting you want to share for our audience? Yeah, thank you for giving me the heads up on this. And interestingly, I didn't have to dig too deep in my brain. So um, Bo is one of my colleagues at Eleanor Health. And Bo shared with me over the holiday that he had heard of this. That was when I first started not feeling well. And he heard of this documentary called 14 Peaks. And it's about this climber that climbed, summited the 14 highest peaks in the world, never been done. And he did it in like two and a half months. And it's a documentary, so cool. it's a documentary chronicling his journey. And you can just imagine the metaphor for the mountains we are climbing at Eleanor Health, the mountains that people with substance use disorder and other mental health conditions need us to climb on their behalf. And it was remarkable to watch. Um, and so even if you think it has nothing to do with you and you're like, I don't even care about rock climbing, it was remarkable to watch. It will inspire you. Thank you for that. 14 peaks. Yeah. So cool. 
I just told one of our engineers at Eleanor yesterday, like we uh, we have a monthly touch point, he and I working on data and technology. Um, and we always swap what we're watching. Like we make recommendations to each other. And I was like, oh my God, you gotta watch 14 Peaks. <laughs> love that, love that. Well, Enzanga, thank you so much for taking the time. What a privilege. So much fun. Thank you for having me. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked or didn't like or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org.